Minor Prophets, and uh, this is our second week in Habakkuk, and uh, just to give uh, some of you a little bit of a background, we've been making our way through the Minor Prophets over these last weeks and months, and a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I, I preached a sermon, and the title of the sermon uh, was stolen from Tom Petty. Uh, the title of the sermon was, The Waiting is the Hardest Part, Waiting. Waiting for the Lord, waiting in two senses, waiting for the Lord and for the great day of the Lord and waiting upon the Lord, that is trusting in the Lord while we wait for the Lord. It means both of those things. And reading through Habakkuk, I think I've changed my mind. I think that waiting may not be the hardest part. I think listening may be the hardest part and listening in this sense, listening with humble Reverence to God when God says excruciatingly difficult things, which is what God does as he responds to Habakkuk's first cry and plea. The first five verses are the introduction to this short book, and then verses two through four are Habakkuk's first prayer, his first complaint, his first plea. And then verses 5 to 11 are God's response. And my dear friends, they are not easy. So we, you and I, uh, each of us here need very much the Spirit of God to help us. Because I do think the listening, listening to God when he responds may, in fact, be the hardest part. So let's read God's word together, beginning at verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. Or literally, wonder with wonder. That's the literal text. Wonder with wonder. Be amazed with amazement. Be astounded with astonishment. Wonder and be astonished. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. See what's being said. They are a self-defining, self-authenticating group of people. They write the rules and then they enforce the rules according to their own understanding. Not some sense of justice outside themselves, but they are the source of their own justice. And my friends, their justice is bitter. Their horses are more swift than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour they all come for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. 
Lord, uh, grant us your mercy, grant us your help as we wrestle with your word, even as Habakkuk wrestled in your presence. Oh, Lord, do we need your help this morning. So come and grant it by your spirit in connection with your word. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As we, uh, as we come to these verses, um, as I've said, we come to God's response to uh, Habakkuk. And as we come to this response, I want to make a couple of general observations and then make a couple of specific points. And I will just tell you that, that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be unpacking these things uh, even more fully. So I hate to tell you that if you're only here in town for the week, but, uh, or if you're not intending to come back next week, maybe that'll entice you to come back. But you know, this is the way preaching works. It's an ongoing conversation. It's not a standalone sort of thing. And, and uh, we are just kind of plowing ourselves, plowing our way through this uh, prophet Habakkuk. And, and so I want to make these general observations and then a couple of specific points that we're going to unpack more in the weeks to come. And here's the first of these uh, first general observations. The first one of this is this. And we sort of alluded to this last week, but I want to stress it again this week. As we come to Habakkuk, we come to something that's quite different from really the rest of the minor prophets and, in fact, all of the minor prophets. If you think about the prophets, there is an audience out there and they're addressing. They're commissioned by God and they're given a message and they speak to this audience that's out there. Now, if you read these prophets like Jeremiah for example, maybe the best example, you see Jeremiah struggling with stuff. You see him interacting with God personally. But generally, the audience in the rest of the minor prophets and, and then the major prophets is out there. But here the audience is up there. Here the audience of Habakkuk is not an audience out there. He certainly has preached. He certainly has conducted his ministry as a prophet. But in this little book, the audience is there. And the audience is God himself. And here's the word that I would suggest characterizes this interaction between Habakkuk and God. It's the word wrestling. It's the word wrestling. And that should be a great comfort to you. It really should be a great comfort to you that you, in effect, are being invited in, as I said last week, to Habakkuk's prayer life. Remember last week we, we said that Habakkuk prayed honestly and he prayed with understanding and he prayed with perseverance and he prayed with assurance. You're being invited into Habakkuk's prayer life. But what you're watching as you watch the prophet Habakkuk is somebody who wrestles and somebody who struggles. He's a wrestler. He's a struggler. He looks at what is happening in the world around him and his first decision is a right decision. He goes to the right place. The paper this morning, if you saw the front page of the local paper, they're guessing that by the end of the year, 50 million jobs worldwide will be lost. Everybody knows that everything seems to be tanking. Now, look, we're all Dickensian in some sense, right? We're all like Charles Dickens, The Tale of Two Cities. It's always the best of times or the worst of times. I mean, it's always the highest high or the lowest low. I don't know how bad this is, but you're feeling it. Everybody's feeling it. I'd caution you from thinking this is absolutely the worst of times. There are folks 
here in this room who probably have some recollection of things being worse than they are today. But the point is, as you look at your world around you, as Habakkuk looked at his world around him, he in the first place went to the right place. And, and that place is the presence of God. And when he got there, when he got there, he wrestled. He wrestled. He struggled. And you see that in the simple outline of this little book, this little prophecy. In verses 2 through 4, he prays. In verses 5 through 11, God responds. Habakkuk isn't satisfied, and he goes back. I love that. I love that. This last Friday morning, a question was asked, if God's going to do what God's going to do, why bother? And we'll come to this in in just a minute in unpacking the second general observation. If God's going to do what God's going to do, why bother? Well, please be instructed by Habakkuk that he doesn't respond that way. He prays, God responds, he's not satisfied, he goes back. And he keeps wrestling. The Psalms are filled with this. Read the Psalms. My dear friends, Read them. Don't just read them for information about God. Read them for instruction about how God's people feel so free, and rightly so, because of the cross of Christ supremely, to go to the one place that we ought to go as we look at the world around us, and we're confounded and we're perplexed, And that place is to the presence of God. Go and keep going. That's what Habakkuk does. And when he gets there, he's not stoic about things. He's also not resentful. That's instructive. He's not stoic. He's not a determinist, right? He doesn't have a mechanistic view of the universe. He goes back again and again and again, it seems, to struggle with the things that he struggles with in the presence of the God who is really and truly there. And that leads then to this second observation. Um, And this second observation is that when he goes to that place and I know, gosh, maybe this sounds like one of those, oh, he's at it again things. You know, one of those sort of ad nauseum things. Like, okay, I've heard you say this. I've heard you say it multiple times. I'm getting tired of hearing it. Let me just remind you, the two most often repeated commands in the scriptures are do not be afraid and remember. So I'm in good company (laughs) with the writers of Scripture when I seek to remind you of things and call to your mind things that you may know but things of which and about which I need to be reminded and I would suggest that you do too. And here's the second thing. It's implicit in what we've already said, but let's make it explicit. When Habakkuk goes back again and again and again, bringing his complaints, bringing his prayers, bringing his pleas, bringing his cries, He is bringing his pleas and his cries to a person, to a person. He is bringing his cries and pleas before the infinite personal God who is really and truly 
there. Folks, this is what the essence of the religion of the Bible is. This is what the essence of Christianity is. It involves persons. I'm the finite person. I'm the limited person. But you see, the whole nature of what God the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, does, the things that we talked about and tried to unpack a little bit last week, the things that the infinite personal God who is really there does always involve persons. He makes covenant as the infinite personal God with persons who are finite and limited. And the nature of that covenant relationship is gracious. There are a lot of things to be said about the religion of the Bible, a lot of things to be said about Christianity. It is a worldview. As Edith Schaefer put it, she wrote a book called A Way of Seeing. It's a whole way of seeing, a whole way of seeing reality. It's a lens through which you look, and everybody's got a lens. Nobody's free of bias. Nobody is above having opinions. Nobody is above having presuppositions that lie beneath the convictions that they articulate and the behaviors that they manifest in the way they live. There are always these assumptions, these presuppositions down below. That's a worldview. It's a way of seeing. And and Christianity is that. And it includes a moral code, a a way of life. And, And it includes a theology, that is, particular propositional truths about the God who is really there. And then it's a story. It's also a story. It's, it's the one true story from which all of the other stories derive their meaning and significance. It's the never-ending story. But at the heart of all of that, at the heart of all of that, at the core of it, the religion of the Bible is about persons. Me, the finite person. God, the infinite person. And here's the thing that characterizes this relationship. And this is so stunning, so staggering. I can't, oh, how I want to get my brain around this. It is a relationship that is characterized by mutual love and delight and joy. That's what's characteristic of this. Look at the way Habakkuk ends. I'll, I'll just jump you to the end after, after he's been in the presence of God and he's wrestled with God and he's not gotten answers to all of his questions. And God has responded to him and, and tried to unpack what he's about and what he's going to do. Look at how this little book ends. This is stunning. Though the fig tree should not blossom, though there be no fruit on the vines, though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls though the world economy crash through the floor and I am left destitute yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will take joy in the God of my salvation. 
What's the nature of the religion of the Bible? It's personal and it's characterized by joy. It's characterized by love. It's characterized by mutual delight. And I emphasize the word mutual because it isn't just that we are summoned in this relationship with the infinite personal God who is really there to know joy in his presence, but he, in fact, this is the Bible, knows joy in our presence. He knows joy in the presence of his people. You remember Zephaniah 3? The Lord your God is in your midst. Zephaniah 3, 17. The Lord your God, your God is in your midst. I know you don't see him. I know you can't feel him. But here is what he feels, what he knows as he is here in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, if I were 21 years old, I'd say, dude, yo, really? He will rejoice. He will exult. He himself will shout in song over you, his beloved children. It's always a fun exercise to have people close their eyes and do this word association thing. I mention the word. You tell me the first thing that comes to mind. The word is God. What is the first thing that comes to mind? It should be. It should be. It ought to be gladness and rejoicing. Look at Psalm 149. I just read this this morning. This is not an isolated thing, folks. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. There's rejoicing. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing. I know we're Presbyterian. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. Why? Why all of this praise? Why all of this gladness? Why all of this? Because verse 4, the Lord takes pleasure in his people. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. This is what is at the heart and soul. It is of the essence of the religion of the Bible. Finite persons in covenant relationship to God, the infinite person. And folks, if Habakkuk could get to that place on the other side of the cross, how much clearer is it for us on this side of the cross seeing this incredible display of God's determination to love, to redeem, to save to the uttermost? A precious people for himself. That's himself. That's what you see in the cross. And those whom he has redeemed to himself, he takes pleasure in. He delights in. All of this other stuff is a part of what Christianity is. The worldview, the moral code, the theology, the story. 
But at the center of it all is God in relationship with his friends, his sons and daughters, those in whom he delights and those who are summoned to delight in him. That's what you were made for. You know, let me just suggest to you that if we lose sight of this, which Habakkuk doesn't seem to have lost sight of, let me just suggest to you that if we lose sight of this, prayer is going to malfunction for us. See, if I only see prayer, we're looking at Habakkuk's prayer life here, right? And I'm giving you the backdrop against which to understand prayer, not the totality of it, but a key and central aspect of it. If I lose sight of this backdrop against which, or this canvas upon which we're painting this picture, if I see prayer simply as a means by which, through which, I get what I want, what will happen if I don't get what I want? And... And this is critical, and we don't have time to unpack it. But if I see faith or believing in God as the currency which I insert in God, the cosmic vending machine, who when properly punched distributes the desired beverage, what happens if I don't have enough of the currency? And my friends, I don't have enough of the currency of faith. I'm one of those like the guy in the gospel who cries out daily, hourly, minute by minute, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, if God is just a cosmic vending machine, who responds when I punch the button, putting in enough currency, the currency of faith, to get what it is that I need or think I need or what somebody else tells me that I think I need. Are you with me? Bottom line, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be suffering. If you had enough faith, you'd be delivered from this thing. Right? If that's how we understand faith, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to experience what I've experienced across 30-plus years of ministry. I'm going to find myself in my office picking up the shattered pieces of broken lives, people who believed a lie and whose hearts were broken because of it. My dear friends, in the first instance, the core of the Bible of religion, the religion of the Bible, is that we are in relationship to God, the infinite person, through the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been made his friends, made his sons and daughters, and we do on this side of the cross what Habakkuk amazingly did on the other side of the cross, rush into his presence freely, gladly, and wrestle deeply before him. When we encounter, as we inevitably will, the heartaches, the heartbreaks, the tragedies, the struggles of life in this, what Francis Schaeffer so properly calls, I was reading his letters yesterday, life in this abnormal world. It's an abnormal, you are abnormal people, don't take it personally, living in an abnormal world. 
And unless we understand that the religion of the Bible is essentially at its core a relationship of persons, then I want to suggest to you that prayer will malfunction. Prayer is this incredible thing that God has given us through Jesus Christ where we as children may come before him as Habakkuk did and wrestle openly and honestly and freely and gladly rejoicing and joying in him even as he rejoices and joys in us as we struggle. So there are those two things, general observations that seem to leap out of this little book to me. We are in relationship to the infinite personal God. We have trusted in Jesus Christ who have come to understand who he is in his perfect work on the cross and his life of obedience, all of those things that I trust are familiar. And now it is a relationship because of Christ that is characterized by love and joy and mutual delight. Now here are the two specific points, the general observations and now the two specific points. Sabakic struggles with God as he comes into the presence of God freely, gladly, without apology. He has certain expectations, certain desires, certain longings. And number one, God doesn't say what Habakkuk expects, and God doesn't do what Habakkuk expects. First, he doesn't say what Habakkuk expects him to say. Here's where Habakkuk is. Habakkuk is in 615 or so, maybe 620 B.C. Habakkuk knows about the reforms that occurred under Hezekiah back there in the past, maybe 75 years ago. He knows about that work. In his own lifetime, in all probability, he witnessed the renewal, the, the revival, if you will, some measure of reform that came to the country, came to the people under Josiah. A renewal, a reform. And what Habakkuk is praying for in verses 2 through 4 is a greater work like that. Lord, I look around, I see all of this injustice. You remember from last week, these are the words that characterize what he says, sees. He sees violence. He sees destruction. He sees strife. He sees contention. He sees the law paralyzed because the people of the land have repudiated it. This, this life-giving, soul-nurturing wisdom that comes from God, it's been neutralized because the people have rejected it. And Habakkuk cries out as he looks at the land and he pleads with God that God would act, that God would do something. What does he want? He wants God to do to a greater, and all the commentators are of like mind about this, just so you know I'm not dreaming this up out of my own head. The commentators all see this. They see this in Habakkuk. What does he want? He wants God to do something greater than he did in the days of Josiah. He wants God to do something greater than he did in the days of Hezekiah. He wants God to reform, to renew, to restore the people. Rob Norris is the pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland. He did a missions conference for us in Orlando several years ago. My middle name is Norris. So I loved that he was there. And we had this conversation. And he remembers, he's about my age, he remembers in the late 50s walking with his grandfather, my grandfather, 
in the little village where his grandfather grew up. And, and little Rob Norris asked his grandfather about all of these big church buildings in this little village. And Rob Norris told me that his grandfather's eyes moistened, filled with tears, as he reflected upon what God did in Wales in the early part of the 20th century, a mighty movement of the Spirit of God. And they built all these buildings because the smaller buildings couldn't accommodate the people with real and serious spiritual interest. And they came to these buildings and they overflowed them, so they enlarged them, they expanded them. So rich and pervasive was the longing to hear the gospel of Christ in Wales in 1903 and 4 and 5 and 6. And now it's the late 50s and the buildings are empty. And the grandfather weeps with longing that God would do in the late 50s what he had done 50 years earlier. That's what Habakkuk is crying out for. Come and do it again, but do it more fully. Revival is a fascinating thing to study, by the way. It's a fascinating thing to study. Terribly misunderstood in our day and time. It's a little parenthetical comment here. You don't put a bunch of posters around a city and say, Revival, September 13th, 8 p.m. Revival is a work of the Spirit. It's sovereign. It's unexpected. There are certain precursors to it, like people weeping like the grandfather did, pleading with God for it. And sometimes they're dead and long gone before the revival, the time of refreshing comes. But it's always a work that God does and people recognize that it happened after it's over. You don't advertise for it. You don't get some phenomenally well-known speaker to come and precipitate it. It is a sovereign work of Almighty God. And something like that happened in the days of Josiah and something like that happened in Wales in the early 20th century. And that's what Habakkuk wants to see happen again. Don't you? Don't you? And you know where revival starts, by the way? When we talk about revival, the parenthesis continues. It starts in the church. It starts with God's people being brokenhearted and humbling themselves and come to ter- coming to terms with themselves and the God who is the God of the covenant in relationship to them. And then it bleeds out of the people of God into the surrounding community. That's the order. It's not really, ironically, interestingly, it's not an evangelistic meeting. It is a mighty movement of the Spirit of God in the midst of the people of God that then spills out into the surrounding community. That's what Habakkuk wants. He wants the people of God to be revived restored, renewed. Well, then God speaks. And when God speaks, he doesn't say the things that Habakkuk wants to hear. You know, um, I, I... Even as I was preparing this week, I I struggled. Should I share this illustration again? Because it's so familiar. But until I find a better one, I'm going to keep using it. You've got to understand that Lucy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was absolutely right when she asked about Aslan. 
she asked Mr. Beaver, is he safe? And Mrs. Beaver said, safe? No, he isn't safe. He is the king, I tell you. But he is good. If Habakkuk had heard little Lucy say that, he would have said amen. And if he had heard Mrs. Beaver's response, he would have said amen and amen and amen and amen. The God of glory, the Holy One of Israel, is not safe. What Habakkuk wants is a mighty, renewing work of the Spirit. What God says that Israel is going to experience is Babylonian hordes marching across their land, destroying villages, pillaging, raping, burning, forever altering the landscape of Israel's life. He doesn't hear what he had hoped to hear. So often it seems that that's the case. And if I could encourage you just to hit the pause button for a second and encourage you to personalize this. So often, isn't it true that we don't hear what we want to hear? We come into the presence of God. We wrestle in the presence of God. We have expectations. We have hopes. We have dreams. We have desires. We pour out our hearts before the And either there is silence, and there may have been some of that for Habakkuk between verses 4 and 5. We don't know how much time transpired. But how often is it the case that when God finally speaks, it isn't what we wanted to hear? Isn't Job the classic illustration of that? Job, for 36 chapters, pours out his heart before God. He pours out his heart before the idiot friends that he has surrounding him. The moronic friends who sort of have the kind of calculus about prayer and relationship to God that so many people seem to be purveying out there, that if you've got the right currency and you put the right currency in the right machine, you're going to get the right result. That's the gist of his moronic friends and their counsel. Over 36 chapters. And when you come to chapter 37 and God responds, Job does not hear what Job had hoped to hear. What Job gets is simply a bunch of questions. Okay, brother, you've asked me. Now it's my turn to ask you. And here's the bottom line with the book of Job. In rapid-fire succession, God asks Job through these questions whether he, Job, believes that he, Job, is big enough, smart enough, powerful enough, wise enough, able enough to manage the whole of the universe around him. And the answer to all of those questions is obvious. They are rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious, no. And the punchline, which is not literally delivered, but is there by implication, is this. Job, you look at the immensity of the universe that I have spun into existence by the breath of my mouth, 
and you trust me to keep it spinning, if you can trust me with that, you can trust me with your life. Even in the midst of your griefs and your sorrows and all of your losses, if you can trust me with that, you can trust me with your life. He didn't hear what he wanted to hear. Go read Romans 9 as Paul anticipates questions from his countrymen and from others about this mysterious doctrine of election and why Jacob is loved and Esau is hated, why Pharaoh is raised up for the specific purpose of manifesting the glory of God, the name of God, the power of God before the nations of the world. And the anticipated question is, if God's going to do all that, that is who God is, if that is what God is like, and Paul's response to that, and it is tough, my friends, my, my, Paul's response to that is, as the creature, who are you to dictate to the creator what he will do with the universe that he has made and even the inhabitants who dwell in it? There are so many times in the scriptures where God speaks a hard word and it's not a word we want to hear. And it's a word, as I suggested at the very beginning, that we have to, by the grace of God, humbly, reverently be prepared to receive. What God says to Habakkuk as Habakkuk pours out his heart is that these wild hordes, dreaded, fearsome, swift, flying like eagles, consuming everything in their paths, are going to march across the land like a blitzkrieg, for those of you who remember World War II. Like the Urukai, for those of you who know the story of these worlds at war, Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings story. And what is the reason for this? Why is it happening? And this is the second thing. God is doing this for a specific reason. He is doing this to purify, to cleanse, to purge, his people. He's doing this not to drive his people away. He is doing this in the mystery of his providence with all of the suffering and difficulty and heartache that will be involved with the exile looming large in the eyes of Habakkuk the prophet and those who had eyes to see it. With that exile looming large, God is doing this not to drive his people away. He is doing it to correct his people, to teach them that he is God. And he is doing that, this, in fact, to draw them to him, not to drive them away. He is doing this that they might trust him more. Now hit the pause button again and personalize this. Why do the circumstances of my life unfold as they do? 
Why do the difficulties, the heartaches, the hardships, the sorrows, the griefs, why do these things unfold as they do? The first answer to that is we live in an abnormal world. It is a world filled with heartache. But the second and more critical answer is that God, who loves his people, who is purposeful in all that he does, holds all of these heartaches, all of this sadness, all of this grief in his hands. And because of his love for his people, orders all of it not to drive his people away, but to draw his people to himself that they might trust him more deeply. In it, he is driving away all of the idols that cannot save, the idols that do not give life, the idols that do not satisfy the deep longings of the heart, driving and destroying all of those things away so that God because he is merciful and kind and because he loves his people, they find that his people return to him, are drawn to him, even though on the inside and around you it feels like death to move in the midst of that in the direction of God who orders all these things begins to feel like life. That's the great paradox and the great irony and the great mystery of God's dealing with his people. Here's a poem, and I submit it to you. It's an anonymous thing. I heard it years ago from Ravi Zacharias, but it summarizes what God is doing here. Remember that God is in relationship to us. It is a relationship characterized by love and mutual delight, and this is what the anonymous poet writes. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Now, lest you think you're alone in these sufferings and these difficulties and this confusion and these uncertainties, lest you alone or feel that you alone struggle in the midst of these, know that you are surrounded by people who struggle in the midst of them. And know that in the midst of those who struggle similarly, there is one who struggled before you. Read Hebrews this week. Read Hebrews 2, read Hebrews 4, and read Hebrews 5. 
used to think the whole point of Hebrews was to establish the superiority and supremacy of Jesus. I still think that. But the more I read Hebrews, the more I'm convinced it's a book about suffering. And specifically about Jesus' suffering. And how Jesus, the royal son, learned himself obedience through the things that he suffered. My friends, as you wade through these uncertainties and these sufferings, as you wrestle in the presence of God with all of the confusion that I know is a part of that wrestling, know that there is one who has wrestled before you and who wrestles with you in the midst of your wrestlings, your great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, this is hard. We don't like what you say so much of the time. And we really don't like what you do a lot of the time. We confess it. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have walked through all of this ahead of us. And I pray for myself. And I pray for my people, these people. That you would draw near to us. Lord, some of these folks here are sick. Some of these folks have breaking hearts. Some of these folks are deeply wounded and confused. Some of us struggle deeply to know that you are supremely good. Lord Jesus, be with us in the midst of these struggles and lead us to the presence of the Father so that we might taste and see that he is good, that he does love us, that he does delight in us, his friends, his sons, his daughters. We need a taste, Lord Jesus. Be merciful and give it to us. We ask in your name. Amen. Would you stand with me and uh, we'll sing together. Number 98, now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices. Number 98.